the sounds. And again, parents, if you're in here and your kid makes sounds, uh, we're glad you're here. So we are not the church where kids are merely seen and not heard. That's not, um, that's not, that's not us. And so uh, we thank God for what he's doing and uh, the way he's at work in families. And that's a beautiful sound. So it's interesting. If you look at how fraud works over time and the different people who have committed fraud... Uh, they will give you some common kind of threads that they kind of go through. For example, that Frank Abagnale guy who did the Catch Me If You Can uh, scandal. You probably uh, saw the movie maybe or read about the books. And he impersonated a pilot. He impersonated a lawyer. He impersonated being a doctor. Uh, Thankfully, he did all those things without actually arguing a case or flying a plane or operating on someone. So that's good. But he, he managed to go through this entire time of you know, people actually thinking that's what he was, and he gleaned the various benefits of those positions because he was very good at it. Uh, but it's, it's something where he would constantly say one of his biggest fears the entire time uh, was that somehow he'd be caught. And that was just sort of pressing on him every, every day, every year, and an ongoing kind of uh, pressure-filled existence. He was going, oh man, I'm going to be caught. I'm going to be kind of, of course, eventually, uh, that came to be true. And he spent time in jail in multiple countries, actually, as a result of that. Um, but, but it's the same thing for other kinds of frauds. Uh, whatever, you know, some of the greatest Ponzi schemes of all time, same thing, right? There's this ongoing way of which I had to take money from here and put it over there. I had to make the books look a certain way. And there was constantly this pressure that I'm going to be caught. And... Uh, and, and that's one thing, to be found out as a fraud and to be perpetrating that on other people and, and to try to uh, live your life as though you're something you're not. But as I'm thinking about it and as we kind of look at where we're at today in the scriptures, the only thing worse than that would be to think that you're genuinely something when in fact you're not. To find out you're a fraud not because you were intentionally perpetuating a fraud on other people, but to find out you are fake, you are not genuine, you are not the real thing. And nowhere can that be more terrifying than when standing before the judgment seat of God. In the closing section of Sermon on the Mount that we've been traveling through now for many, many weeks, uh, Jesus has made several different distinctions between what it means to be a genuine follower of him and, and to be a fake. And, and talks about, he has talked about in previous weeks, there are two gates, there are two ways, there are two destinations, there are two groups of people, there are two kinds of trees and two kinds of fruit. And now we look at two groups of people on the Day of Judgment. And it's sobering. Uh, there's two kinds of builders building two kinds of buildings. And Christ is, is drawing this line clearly so that people can discern where they're at. His hearers can understand, where am I really at with the Lord? Because the mere claim of being a follower of Jesus, the, the mere profession of, of trusting him or the outward kind of expressions of commitment to him don't actually indicate whether our walk with him is real. Christian discipleship or or following Jesus is genuine when it arises from a heart transformed by grace. And this inner transformation, Matthew calls it repentance throughout his gospel. Jesus describes it 
throughout the Sermon on the Mount in different ways. But inevitably, that does bear good fruit. And so today, Jesus comes to sort of the apex, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's talked about all these different elements of being a kingdom citizen, now it kind of grows in, in sort of this expression of where are you really at? And so we find here that he concludes with a warning, a warning out of love, but a warning that's clear and a warning we all need to take to heart. So if you would, go ahead and open in your Bibles or whatever you're using to look at the Bible. Um, Open to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 21 through 29. And because this is God's word and we want to give it reverence and respect, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Beginning in verse 21, listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that in this time, you, by your spirit, would work inside of us in such a way that we would clearly heed your teaching that we would look at where we're really at with you. And that by your grace, in light of your truth, we would be a people who are genuine followers of you. Uh, For those among us who perhaps have been making a profession that perhaps is not a genuine one, we would ask that you would open eyes and open hearts and bring repentance. Lord, we pray that we would heed this warning well, that you would be glorified, that your gospel would resound from us, that the grace that saves would be the song on our lips, that we would be proclaiming with all our heart, Jesus, the name above all names. We ask this in in your mighty name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. As we... uh, travel through this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're, we're going to see a couple clear, clear warnings and then also a very clear uh, description of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. But 
he begins by giving us two inadequate indicators of genuine faith. And uh, the first is merely saying the right things. Merely saying the right things. And we find that in verses 21 through 23. You'll notice how many times the word says occurs in these verses. Look closely at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, and then it gives the quotes of what they said, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 22, many will say. And so he's, he's describing people who speak, say things, uh, but they aren't saying that as, as genuine followers. He also, in verse 21, you'll see they want to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he brings a contrast and says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to actually look at verse 21 at the end. Do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus isn't saying here we're saved by works. By the way, some people have taken that passage this way. That's right. See, so if you obey, then everything's fine. That's the, the, the main thing. That's where your hope rests. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, if you look at the entire Sermon on the Mount where Jesus started and all the things that we've looked at over the previous weeks from coming to God as a spiritual beggar all the way through to what, the, what you rest in in terms of the righteousness that you're seeking is his righteousness because it's not yours. He talks about all those things. No, you're not saved by works. What he's saying is when you actually come to faith... You're like a tree, a good tree planted in good soil. You're going to bear good fruit. And so you're going to produce the fruit of, of growth in him, the fruit of, of a different kind of life, a life of growing obedience. And so we would find that, you know, when we're talking about doing the will of the Father who's in heaven, if we look at the rest of this sermon prior to this, we see that the main thing is, the first thing is the Father's will is that we repent and believe that we turn away from our, our sin and trust in him that, that he saves, that we'd also turn away from our self-righteousness or our religious practices and turn to Christ, Christ alone, who saves. There's righteousness that's his, that's not ours, and we need to seek it. And when we do, we receive it as, as a gift, and that gift gives us forgiving grace. He takes our sins away um, that, that grace also that comes is, is an enabling grace that causes us to live our lives in a different way. You also notice that Jesus says here, who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Whoa. Bold declaration. Jesus is saying, I am not just the run-of-the-mill teacher here. No, my Father is the Father who is in heaven. I'm speaking on behalf of him. I'm declaring to you the truth. I have a different kind of nature. I am, I am actually of the divine, majestic one. His unique, one-of-a-kind, only begotten son. You'll notice the plea that they give him, those who are merely speaking of knowing him. Again, verse 22, many will say, there's the, there's the verb again. They say his name now twice, Lord, Lord. And, and they do... Uh, these, this for emphasis. It's, it's even kind of the way the, the word order uh, is placed. It's Lord, Lord, and then it's your name. I, we did it for you in your name in light of who you are kind of thing. And they repeat this phrase of your name even multiple times. Uh, so there's an emphasis here. And they draw attention to these activities that they did supposedly because of their genuine walk in him, and yet Jesus is saying that's not the case. And the things that they bring up are spectacular things, right? 
Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not declare your words to people? Uh, Did we not speak prophetically? Uh, Certainly, um, they're doing something. They're they're declaring what God has said. We declared your words. Again, the idea of speaking. We said the right things. Uh, They go on to say, did we not cast out demons and perform many miracles? So these these are just spectacular displays of of ministry in his name. And yet, though they say those things and though they do those things and, and, and perform these mighty acts, even miraculous acts, Jesus has a very, very disturbing response. And by the way, he plays on that verb to say as well. Notice verse 23, and then I will declare. So they say this to me, they say this to me. Lord, Lord, your name, your will, your word. They're saying those things. And Jesus says in verse 23, I will say to them or declare to them, I never knew you. Whoa. That's just... to have thought you were following and walking with, and then all of a sudden to have him say, you, you thought you knew me. I, I, don't know who, I don't know you. That's just a, a sobering statement. And you think about this and you're going, man, I mean, that, what does that mean? He didn't know them. What is that? Uh, that phrase for to know you has the idea of, of, of knowing as one's own. So there's a, there's a, it doesn't mean he was ignorant of their existence, you know, or, or that um, somehow he was unaware of them. No, instead it is he never saw them as his. And, uh, and then he goes on, uh, he quotes from Psalm 6, verse 8, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And, uh, and that's a startling thing here. He's, he's, he's making this the declaration, depart from me as the divine judge. That's another thing. He, Jesus already said, my father who's in heaven, now he's saying, I am the judge and you were to go. He interacts with these people who make this claim before him on the last day as the righteous ruling judge over all. Jesus is saying that. He's, saying, he's not saying the Father's saying that. He's saying, I'm saying this. I will say to them this. Now realize, look, Moses never said something like that. Um, none of the prophets from the Old Testament all the way up to John the Baptist, none of them spoke that way. This is unique. It's a stunning declaration. And so at that point, you're listening to this and you're going, man, what is going on? Well, notice, you who practice lawlessness. So that's a pattern of life. That's an ongoing, uninterrupted pattern of life whereby someone is living against what God has declared as being true and right and good. Against his declaration or his commands. And that's what Jesus is bringing. He's bringing a massive contrast between saying and doing. 
They might say good words, but they don't live lives truly rooted in him. Uh, that word for lawlessness would be the opposite of what Jesus has said earlier. Again, you'll recall in chapter 5, verse 6, blessed are those who do what? They hunger and thirst for righteousness. How did that hunger and thirst come about? Because they began as poor in spirit, as mourning over their sins. There's a progression there. That's where Jesus started. These folks are the opposite. There's no desire for that. They're just saying the right things, saying the right words, not following him. A disciple is a follower. That's what that means. But it's really easy to learn the lingo. Uh, many years ago, I've shared this with some of you before, but um, I, was a, I was a music major in college. Yeah, that's how I ended up here, folks. Exactly. Makes sense, right? Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, here I am. You're stuck. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but uh, I started off uh, in, in music, kind of, you know, taking all those classes, and I had a business of music class, you know, the business of music. And we had a textbook. I can still see the cover of the textbook. It was this 80s guitar guy. Big hair, big guitar, you know. You know, that was like the pose. And you'd be reading through it, and it would talk about different elements of the music business, right? So how do you get a recording contract? How does publishing work? You know, what's all that? Um, And then it goes into different segments of the music industry. You know, there's country, and there's rock, and there's R&B. And there's this thing called Christian music. And you can make some serious dough if you want to. And then the book, and realize this, the book is written just to any musician out there by a bunch of people who are just making money in the music business. And and it had actually, I kid you not, a table. And it had lingo you've got to learn to make it in the Christian music industry. (laughs) You've got to learn to call people brother. You know, you've got to learn to talk about praying for people. And then you got to learn how to, other buzzwords like fellowship and, and grace, and kind of just take those terms and throw them into your kind of everyday speech, and people are going to think you're a Christian. It's really easy to say it. It's really easy to sound like it. You just learn these terms and use them, and b- before you know it, you'll be making some serious money. That was the, the kind of premise of the book. But again, what's Jesus saying? You might say good words, but if you're not actually living as a follower of me, those words don't help you. Where are you at today? Do you say the words? Know the lingo? Do you know how to come across as someone who's following Jesus? The question is, do you follow him in your daily life? Do you take his words that he's declared here and live on them, receive them, meditate on them? Meditate meaning to to Take in your mind and over and over again, enjoy them and savor them and chew on them and think on them. 
Or is this time we're using right now gathered in his name before him? Is this just sort of like a box you're checking off and then you're out here and out those doors, hit your car and run with life however you feel like? That's the question that we're being asked today. So one false criteria for genuine faith would be just saying, quote unquote, the right things. The the other one would be this, merely hearing the right things. That's not a good criteria to know where we're really at with the Lord. Jesus describes that in verses 26 and 27. And he says, hey, everyone who hears the words of mine and doesn't act on them, they're like a foolish man. And of course, here he builds that contrast, right? You've got two kinds of people and they're building on two kinds of soil or two kinds of ground. One is rock, one is sand. But if you're, you notice, it's everyone who hears these words of mine. They, they take them in, they love them. Oh man, that was a good one. Yeah, man, Jesus was really rocking. Look at the, the nuances of what he said here. That was really cool. How did he bring that out? Whoa, That's a, that, that happened then. He was teaching in a different way, we hear. It was attractive to people. They're like, whoa, what's going on? But notice the, the, the response. They might hear the word, verse 26, but it says, and does not act on them. Literally, do them. Hears, but doesn't do. This is a fool. So foolish. And to bring that point out, Jesus describes this one who builds house on the sand. Uh, I don't know if you're a beach person or not. If you are, congrats to you. My wife, Janet, has taught me to enjoy the beach more, okay? So I'm kind of growing in that. Um, They're pretty. They're beautiful. I used to always say, yeah, aside from like the sun, the people, the salt water, the wind and the sand, I love the beach. It's great. <laughs> you know? But you know when you go out there, especially if you're, the, you know, you got little kids, you know, what do you want to do? You want to build a sandcastle. Yeah, woo! You know, and so we go. But here's the thing. Every sandcastle you build, guess what happens? Gone. It's a great project at the time. It's a lot of fun. But let's face it. You're never going to build one of those for the purpose of moving your family in, right? You're not going to do that. Why? Because sand shifts. Sand moves. Sand, sand is not solid. Um, certainly, we know plenty of examples. Some recent history, even when things are built poorly, what do they do? They collapse. And so Jesus is giving a sobering observation in a common sense way. Everybody knew this. Everybody understood this. You don't build your house on sand. You just don't do it. No one would do that. And yet, those who hear his words and don't do them, that's what they're doing. Building a house on sand. The book of James gives us a similar warning when it says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. See what's happening? Somebody just, I've heard it. Yeah, it sounded good to me. 
kind of a superficial sort of allegiance. Yeah, sounds good. And then notice the floods and the, and the winds are coming. What is that talking about? Well, there's persecution and trouble that comes, we're told in, in uh, Matthew 13, verse 21, when Jesus is talking about the parable of the seeds, right? There's troubles that come here in this life, and sometimes when persecution or trouble comes, people just go, forget it, I'm done. Certainly it can be referring to that, but particularly he's talking about the ultimate test of God's judgment on the final day. God's judgment is described in many places in Scripture as a flood against which only the God-given foundation of Christ can anybody stand. And we would see that in Ezekiel chapter 13. Isaiah 28 describes God's judgment in that way as well. And so because there's sort of a superficial kind of fake discipleship here, the, the one who builds their house in that way, it's just going to collapse. And notice it says that the fall is great. It's not just a kind of a sort of a, oh yeah, it was a minor repair that needs to happen. No, it's a collapse, an utter destruction, collapsed structure. Hearing the right things doesn't mean you're a genuine Christ follower. And we need to understand that. But what does Jesus do? He also gives us not only some of these ways that are not good indicators of genuine faith, and and he moves from that to give us one very decisive indicator that we have a genuine faith, and that is very clearly living out what Jesus says. That's it. Living out what Jesus says. Notice in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. You don't have to build your house on the sand, he's saying. You hear the words and act on them. You can be compared to the wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, don't just hear these words and be moved or impressed or amazed. Hear them and follow. That is your only safe course. And it's interesting because we think about, well, then what is this rock? What's the rock that we're to build on? Uh, The term is not simply a a kind of a stone or a pebble. No, it describes a massive cliff or mountainside, something huge, not just a piece of rock. And so the builder's wise because he puts his, his house there on that solid foundation. But then that leads us to a question then. Okay, then what, what is the rock? What's the rock here? And, and some have said, well, the rock is our obedience. And uh, I think Jesus is giving us something more precise here than that. Um, clearly, if we look closely at the passage, look at what it says. Everyone who hears these words of mine. So is the rock our obedience? Is the rock our ability to keep you know, and follow? No. No, he's saying, if you hear the words of mine, um, it's interesting. The, the, the rock would be Christ. Certainly we see that throughout the, the pages of Scripture. The rock refers to God. You know, Andrew earlier mentioned the, God is our, the rock of our salvation. It refers to God, but it also refers to specifically these words. Um, notice that the words and the word rock are both treated in that phrase in the same way when we look at how the sentence unfolds. 
uh, when you look at the construction of this parable, you see act on would be building, and words of mine are the rock. You're acting on the words, you're building on the rock. That's the, that's the point there. That's the picture. Uh, Jesus also describes his word in a similar way in, in, in other contexts that describe this same kind of thing of facing judgment on the last day. Um, you know, he's already said earlier in, in the Sermon on the Mount that every word from God will never pass away. It'll all be fulfilled. Why? Because it's solid, like a rock. And in Luke 9, 26, Jesus says this, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, there you go, me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. So you have this connection between Christ and his words, right? We even find in the Gospel of John, right, Christ is the Logos. He is the word. So the rock here is acting on or building on what? These words of mine. So Jesus is saying, you can't find everlasting life in just sort of pretending to follow me. Simply hearing or admiring, affirming my words, they're not, that's not going to do. The foundation of your everlasting hope must rest on Christ and his words. And we must build our life on that foundation alone. And then also, when we're clear about what the rock is, now that protects us from falling into this sort of, I don't know, works-based salvation thing that's very easy to fall into these days. There are many very, very religious people who say, yes, right, the rock is your obedience. Nope. Your obedience is a fruit that comes from resting your roots in Christ, his word. They're a result. So Jesus goes on to describe that rain. Notice, again, it's the same storm, uh, it's a torrential rain. It's, it's, it's the kind of rain that brings uh, great flooding. If you, if you think of what's happening in Louisiana right now, that's the vividness of what's being described here. It's that kind of a storm. There's strong winds. There's rains that are beating against this structure, and yet it survives. Why does it survive? Because of the foundation it's laid into. Christ and his word. So it's living out what Jesus says. It's the excellence of that foundation that brings security in the midst of that raging storm. So uh, the solid indicator of actual saving faith here is, is living out what Jesus says, his words. He says, these words of mine, he draws attention to that, these words in particular, do them. Now the question now becomes, well, what, what are the words? Which words is he talking about? Well, in the context here, it would be the entire Sermon on the Mount that he's just given us. You'll notice again, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine, what I've just said to you all, this sermon on the mount and everything I've described about the kingdom of God and what it means to be a kingdom citizen. So let's think about it. You know, what, what, what are these words? What, what is Jesus taught? Well, here we've got to ask ourselves the question, have you come to him poor in spirit, as a spiritual beggar, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness that's not your own? Is that how you're approaching him? Those are his words. Do you see Jesus alone as the one who fulfills the law? Are you seeing more and more the seriousness of the sins of your heart? 
You'll recall Jesus described anger against another person, ungodly anger, as being a form of murder. He talked about how lusting in the heart is a form of adultery. Do you see how Jesus alone is the answer to those things in your life? Are you becoming more giving? Are you becoming more forgiving? Because of the radical nature of God's love in Christ, are you growing in more and more love even toward those you would see as your enemies? Are you becoming more generous? Are you becoming more zealous in prayer? Are you someone who fasts more and more because you want to know who God is and his will in this particular moment under trial? Are you less anxious because of God's faithful ongoing provision for you? Are you less judgmental of others because you understand your own shortcomings and God's grace that he's given to you in spite of yourself because of Jesus? Are you seeking God more and more, especially in times of need? Have you entered the narrow gate that leads to life? These are the words Jesus just spoke of. What is your response to what he has said? These are the things that show your real foundation, what you're building your life on. Verses 28 and 29 describe the crowd's reaction to all this. And they are, as it says, amazed at his teaching. That word for amazed is a very powerful, it's like, it's like dumb, dumbstruck, uh, awestruck, astonished, astounded. Why is it, though? Notice verse 29, he was teaching them as one having authority. Uh, that, that word authority has the idea of a dynamic power at work. God is the authority over all things. He is the one who made the universe. By the way, he made the universe effortlessly. It cost him no effort to make the universe because his power is limitless. Authority. Christ has this authority that is along the same lines as what he has done as God. Christ was there at creation. He's the one who ordered the universe by cosmic power. So God is the one who controls world history. God is the judge of the world. Jesus, of course, is claiming here that same authority, right? I'm the one who you will come to, and I'm saying, depart from me. I am the judge of all. God is the one who, by his authority, has fixed the dates and times of, of every season, of every moment. Jesus is the anointed one. He doesn't just receive words from God's mouth. He also speaks with unique authority as the Son of God, the one who alone knows the Father and who alone can reveal the Father's nature to us. It wasn't like the scribes. You know what the scribes were always doing? Well, this person said that. That person said that. That person said that. Ooh, let's do this. Let's say this. And the scribes, of course, were driven by the fear of we don't ever want to disobey, right? They were very, very self-righteous, moralistic, legalistic people. And so if the, the law was here, they're the ones that built the hedge around the law. They, they took God's standards and then they amplified them so that they would never violate, quote-unquote, God's law. 
But what did Jesus point out? When you take the standard and make it a higher standard, guess what? It's not God's standard anymore. Now you're teaching the standards of people. You can't do that. And so by, quote, unquote, raising the standard, you're actually lowering the standard. Jesus speaks as the one who is very much aware of his messianic authority. He's the rock. His words alone bring hope that we must build our lives on. His grace is great. He calls all to repentance. And thankfully, because of his grace, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from him. And yet, as he clearly tells us here, when we come to him by faith and receive that grace, we live our lives differently, growing to honor him more and more, to walk with him. Where are you today? Are you just saying the right thing? Are you just hearing the right thing? Or are you building your life on the rock, Christ and his teaching, by following him, by doing what he says? Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help us to understand your words here. We pray, Lord, that we would become people who come to you poor in spirit, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for that righteousness that is not ours. Thank you that you alone fulfill the law. In, in Christ came to live that life we could never live and to die the death that we deserve. Pray, Lord, that we would follow you, that we wouldn't just say the right words and just hear the right words, but we would live our lives in you for your glory. Amen.